0: Welcome back to Political R&D. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And today I have a panel that I've put together to do Uh, review of the Fair Deal recommendations. And we're going to get right into that. I have from the University of Calgary, she's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science, uh, Dr. Melanie Thomas. She's also been the academic advisor for CBC Calgary's Road Ahead project since 2018. And she was also involved with uh, CBC's data collection for the Fair Deal panel. Welcome, Melanie. Hello, thanks. And I also have Doug Griffiths, former MLA for—I oh, forgot to ask your are riding first.
1: It's okay. It's for Battle River, Wainwright. It
2: changed several. It times.
0: It did change. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I I wouldn't have found it right now. I I did. I did remember Wainwright. Doug was with the PC government for 13 years, and he also had a role in the 2003 panel that looked at basically the same thing the Fair Deal panel is. <laughs> it was called strengthening Alberta's Rolling confederation. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I also have from the University of New Brunswick, Dr. Herb Emery, and he spent 23 years at the University of Calgary. He was a professor of economics and research director in the School of Public Policy. And Herb researched essentially all of the things that have been recommended from the Fair Deal panel. Welcome, Herb. Thank you. Melanie, I didn't realize that you were part of the data collection on on CBC's research for the Fair Deal panel questions. So when you saw the recommendation, was there anything that you found to be at odds with either your own research or even the mandate of the panel itself? So um,
3: the second part of that, what the mandate of the panel was and whether or not the panel filled the mandate, I have to admit my levels of cynicism are quite high at this point. So I would expect that the panel did exactly what it was instructed to do. The sidebar I'd put in this is that... uh, open-minded like genuine research panels are like serve a really useful purpose in Canadian politics like there's any number of ones that we can point to at provincial levels at the federal level with royal commission say or even with the senate where we can point to it and say they actually did like a genuine fact-finding bunch of research and came forward with uh with recommendations and the kicker is that um, you always know it's genuine when the recommendations come forward or one's at the government of the day, like it makes them livid. Like that's oh. that's usually a good indicator <laughs> that you got like a good open-minded process. This I don't think was that. So when I'm looking at the recommendations or even, uh I have to admit the recommendations themselves, I wasn't surprised by anything. I find some of them, uh, like a good batch of them are just kind of like the mother's milk of Western alienation. Like we've heard it before, <laughs> it will probably keep coming back up again. Um, some of them are, uh, directly taken from, uh, the 2019 UCP platform, some of them. So the referendum on to be held in 2021, 2022 mm-hmm. around there. That was something that the, the party that's currently in government openly campaigned on. For me, the things about the report that raised the most alarm bells and red flags are, how a lot of the information is presented. So I see some things where it's not incorrect, but it's certainly not a full and complete and accurate presentation of um, what the, that particular part of the report was talking about. Um, there are some things that are uh, actually not correct at all. Um, So one of the ones that my colleague over in economics, Trevor Toom, has pointed out is that when they talk about how much Alberta's contributed to equalization, if it were true, we would actually have paid out like well over 100% of what the program has paid out, which means that something is not quite right with how that was all presented. So what concerns me about a lot of the presentation of the material in the report is that it is designed to get people who haven't really looked at this stuff before to draw conclusions that are not correct. Like one of the things that really worried me was this idea that if Alberta is paying more into these federal programs that pay out money and we don't get paid out from them, as somebody who hasn't been paying close attention, which is going to be, to be frank, most reasonable people aren't going to be paying close attention to the details of these things, um, they could think that the federal government is disproportionately taxing us simply because we live in Alberta more than we would tax somewhere else. And so I rem- when I was reading this, I was like, oh... I know what they're not saying, but I suspect a lot of other people, if they're actually reading the report, are going to be missing pieces that were strategic, that I think were geared to get people to draw, um, a particularly incendiary conclusion that, and it's basically that we're just getting, like, massively screwed over by Ottawa. Um, the other thing as an irony that I would point out is that, um, the report is actually pretty explicit, and I've observed this in, in particularly Premier Kenny's approach to how he's looking at politics where but the report is really explicit saying we should do more of what Quebec does to get what like all the extra goodies that Quebec gets out of the Federation. And the difficulty that comes through in Alberta, but also comes through, if you look at this in British Columbia and places like that too, is that the, the content of the grievance is very different from Quebec than what it is, I would say out West and out West, it's basically financial saying we're not getting, our fair deal with respect to money and yes. in quebec the content of the grievance is fundamentally different it's much more existential much more grounded in colonialism i you would never hear uh, a quebec separatist talking about it in the language and the terms and using the framing starting points that um that you would that you see as like the the, the western alienation version of this so you can tell a typical professor, I want to just, like, my standard <laughs> response to an answer <laughs> is a 50-minute lecture. So like, so the, the big thing I would say that I found concerning about this report is that it was, I think it's geared to get people who read it to draw incorrect conclusions about Confederation, incorrect conclusions about um, what's happening with respect to Alberta's position in it. Uh, and it's all designed to make people angry. And to make them to support the recommendations, even though, as we'll talk about later, like the report zone data shows that Alberta doesn't actually so support they a lot of the recommendations that they've... Yes.
0: Doug, <laughs> um, because you looked into similar questions while you were working on that committee in 2003, did you hear similar sentiment from Albertans at that time? And actually, I am going to ask for more of that story because... You started out in, in the caucus saying, this is what we need to do, and Ralph Klein said, okay, go.
1: Yeah. Well, he didn't say, okay, good. He said, okay, go, go, learn. Right. Um, <laughs> it was interesting because I was first elected in 2002, and I was 29 years old, and I grew up in rural Alberta, and I have to be honest. I mean, I grew up, I'd say, indoctrinated. <laughs> With the mindset that all of these things were true, and Alberta would be better off if Canada would just quit beating us and and, you know taking everything from us, we were like a milk cow that never got fed. And everyone bought into it. I mean, I remember um, one specific stat; it was in a graphic from high school, and they didn't teach us this in high school. It was just something at that age that everybody passed around that that exactly what Alberta had paid in and to the transfer program is exactly what Quebec had taken out. And we were just yeah. <laughs> in Quebec, and that's all Canada wanted us for. And and um, we were successful despite being in Canada. And, and so we needed our own pension plan and we needed our own police force. And we needed to, and then that was all before the firewall letter that uh, Stephen Harper uh, had posted. And so right before I got elected, we had the Reform party and then the Canadian Alliance had, had grown in influence. And we had the firewall letter that came uh, from Stephen Harper and his crew. And so I actually, I think the third speech I gave in the house was Alberta is going to negotiate its RCMP contract. We should prepare to have an Alberta provincial police force. And I remember saying the words, if you're, if you're going to, whether we do it or not, even if we were going to bluff, it would be best if we had four aces in our hands. So let's, let's prepare for this. And Ralph uh, had assigned Ian McCohen and myself and a couple other people to tour the province and gather some feedback and then meet with economists and experts in pension plans and interview folks from uh, historians about the, because Alberta did have its own uh, police force back around the first two world wars. So we had to go do a bunch of research and then we had to, to, to listen to Albertans and, and it, honestly, you were either angry and said, forget Canada, let's do all of this and do it now. Or you came forward with some, some evidence and science and mathematics and logic and reason, and you said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa I, I don't think that you understand the consequences of what you're doing. And I'll tell you, when I finished that, I had a completely different perspective than when I went into politics. It was one of the most life-changing six months of my life.
0: And you talked yourself out of it, or, or the evidence talked you out of it
1: the evidence talked me out of it and the evidence didn't just talk me out of it. I could never ignore that evidence. It's like, once you see the truth, you can't unsee it anymore. And I, I started at that moment because of that to question every single piece of political tripe I had heard in my, my whole entire life,
0: life. <laughs> you know? all, Yeah,
1: and realized, you know, this is probably off topic, but I mean, politics um, is so much and it. It's, it's part of the reason why i left is about anger and feeding anger and that to me why 17 years later we're back to reviewing this is because it's for political expediency it doesn't make one bit of sense except for garnering political votes
0: and so herb we're going to go back even just a little bit further <laughs> and and see like you said you've been you've been looking at you were looking at this all the entire time that you were with the university of calgary So that started in 1993.
2: Yeah, and I will say there was no interest in anything I was doing on it. It was typically considered the wrong answer or not helpful to the agenda agenda that was going forward. And in part, it's because the challenge is to explain to Albertans what they should be mad about. Now, the actual point is... Albertans have a lot of reasons to be frustrated and angry because you have a resource-based economy with volatility and a lot of good times that come with really tumultuous bad times because there's always been this historical inability to manage the wealth when it's around, which leads to these painful contractions like you're going through now. And picture the reaction in Alberta if that forecast from CMHC is right that your average house price is about to drop by 110000 in Calgary over the next year and a half. You're going to be back to 1981 NEP type anger and hostility. And once people are angry, facts don't matter. It's just sort of you're looking for the anger to find a reason. And So when someone like me wanders in, or Trevor Toome, who's been mentioned and says, you know, your facts aren't lining up, no one cares. This isn't what it's about anymore. It's about give us a reason. And I will say that when you move out of Alberta, the most shocking thing is how disliked Alberta is in Central Canada and East. And I don't know if it's a legacy of Stephen Harper, but if you read the media as you go east, you'll see there's no sympathy for Alberta. There's no sympathy for the lack of access to tidewater. And if anything, it's about, well, they're rich, they deserve it. So there's a sense in Mm. which I'm empathetic to the Fair Deal panel because there is a lack of respect for Alberta when you move east because it's the wrong industry for the rest of Canada. They don't want the oil patch driving this economy and its reputation. And then you get into a new dynamic, which is the federal government doesn't care about provinces, it cares about groups in society. So they look for Canadians who live across the country. They're not looking at Albertans. They're not looking at New Brunswickers. So that creates a new problem that how do you sort of make your case when you have a federal government that's directly making policy towards your constituents and sort of showing a direct relevance? So Quebec has fought that historically, that the federal government is not allowed to come in and do things directly for Quebecers. And so it creates some headaches. If you go back even further in Alberta, there's always been a belief that hard times are due to external forces and in particular institutions from the east. So whether it used to be banks, it used to be railways, Royal Sirwa Commission said it was the constitution that didn't give Alberta and Saskatchewan property rights on the resources until it was too late type thing. So you can just keep going back and back and back, and you're going to keep coming up with every time times get bad, Albertans are looking for a reason it hurts, and they don't want to say, we could have done better managing the resources. And the test I would put to an Albertan is go back to the Jim Prentice election, look at that budget, and ask, where would you be today if that budget had passed? would you be in as much pain? And would you be as angry? Because what came after was just a perfect storm of federal politics, provincial politics, melting down oil markets, and no one really knowing what to do about a situation that was just getting ugly.
0: Okay, some, uh, some hard truths there. When you were looking at the fair deal recommendations, like these, none of these things were new to to you. Did you grow up in Alberta?
2: No, I grew up in Ontario. So when I first moved there, I was disliked by Albertans. I got (laughs) called a car person uh, when I moved there. And then when I said I was leaving, everyone said, you can't leave, you're an Albertan. And everyone else in Canada (laughs) treats me like I'm an Albertan. So I know firsthand what the respect part feels like. So in New Brunswick, they feel I'm too brash and outspoken oh, and impolite, like an Albertan, is the comment I get a lot.
3: Just to like to dovetail on that, as somebody who did grow up in rural Alberta, when I went out to McGill to do my PhD, it was really interesting when I first met someone, like one of these really kind of grad program kinds of things where if they heard where I was from first, I would get this torrent of abuse of you must think like whatever the worst possible thing they could come up with. And I was like, hi, I just want a beer. Like, who does this? Seriously. Um, But if we'd had a substantial conversation first, and then they heard where I was from, they wouldn't believe it. it. Like that's the Alberta in general, let alone being from like, literally the middle of nowhere, needing to give a land location to get my driver's license. So like, the stereotypes run deep. But the thing I would say about that is um, like Albertans perceive like some other Canadians as being an annoying bunch of whiners, which is why we don't want to give them anything. Uh, but so I would just ask the: is it possible that the way that we choose to present ourselves to other Canadians upon these particular issues, like could it be <laughs> that we're getting the reaction that um, it matches exactly what we're putting out? Is that, but. is that, is that social psych or was that, was that intro psych? It's also that? shout and frown, right? Like if we're yeah. going to be an annoying bunch of whiners, like, of course people are going to be like, or if we're going to parade around our wealth when we've got way more of it than everybody else in like a way that says, if only you were smart like us.
1: That's exactly what we do though. We strut around like we're exceptional economists and we're very conservative and we're spendthrift and that's why we're so successful we, we treat it like it's good management, but it's good fortune that the oil was underneath us. Like We didn't plan that. And then we develop it. But if we were such good managers, why do we keep going through these boom and busts and not taxing ourselves to pay for the services we demand? And then when we hit bad times, it's everybody else's fault. And I mean, that's exactly what we portray to the rest of Canada. And then we wonder why they, they don't care when we're down, because (laughs) we rubbed it in their face when we were rich. And when we're down, it's not our fault, it's theirs. It just It's like a bad neighbor that you just don't want to see anymore.
0: I find it interesting the reason that I asked Herb if you were also from Alberta, because I was out in Blackfall, so in between Lacombe and Red Deer. It was farms, right? I went to high school in Lacombe, farming communities. I grew up with a rural mindset. And yes, when things started to change, uh, kind of like what Doug said when you started to to get some of that evidence that made you look at everything, basically, you just kind of had to look at everything else that you'd been taught and that that you believed to be one hundred percent true and actually look at it, which I'm not sure if that happens to everyone.
2: One of the things I miss about Alberta is I really like the people and I like the culture of doing stuff that in Alberta, you don't wait for things. The community level is much more active than it is in the East. Uh, So here there's a tendency to say, we want to do something, let's go to government. So what I didn't like in Alberta is the political stuff that when you got people in a room and they kind of got the fever pitch going on why we're mad. But living in Calgary and meeting people around Alberta and looking what was accomplished, let's call it through the informal sector or voluntary approaches, there's a lot of amazing programs developed. Like I worked with the Immigrant Access Fund that was originally started by the Alberta Network for Immigrant Women, working with the Calgary Foundation. And it was one of the most innovative finance programs for getting immigrants credentialed that I've ever seen. And it's mm-hmm effectively scaling across the country, but no credit goes to Alberta. It was really the community, the private sector pledged their guarantee against a giant line of credit and was able to fill a major gap in a financial sector. And it was a wildly successful program for advancing newcomer integration and success in Alberta and across the country. But you don't see that stuff when everyone's mad. And if that's not the only program you can point to, Alberta is a hotbed of social innovation. But no one mm. sees it because we just see oil and we see angry people saying we're paying too much to Quebec. And in fact, what you should be angry about is the federal government not enforcing the BNA Act and letting your goods get to market because you're landlocked. And if anything, we what we should see is a class action lawsuit, if it's possible, against the federal government for not enforcing the Constitution. The transfers you can't do anything about, as Trevor Tomes pointed out, those are just part of the rules of the game. If you earn more income, you pay more tax. But (laughs) someone's not supposed to be able to stop you from selling your goods in an international market just because they don't like it. And again, it's always... Energy East got killed in part because of that, because even when the rights to build the pipeline were granted, the federal government would not uphold the property rights of the owners. And you can argue that the civil society did the right thing blocking a legally granted decision or a regulatory process that used to have a lot of buy-in. But effectively, what we've seen is Canada's breaking down in terms of east-west trade and Alberta's caught in the middle. And that's where I think the true anger should be coming from.
0: Oh, it's so there. So this
3: is actually, this is, I think, the most existential question that we've thought, but I would have a different view on it from rural Alberta, which is from what it meant to be a farmer with surface rights, but no mineral rights when natural gas was really hot. And what it meant was, uh, like, the this is probably not correct, but the perception that we had was that resource companies were trading mineral rights like playing cards, which meant that we would get a different request from a different firm to do um, surveying or things that were disruptive to the crop that was in the field uh, every. other week and when we would say well no we have a crop in the field like we're trying to do like we're trying to run our business uh we would always get from the land agents well you're not making any money with that anyway and we are so like why would you care about us doing these sorts of things and so from my perspective as like my parents were so frustrated with it that they just developed a blanket no we're not going to be polite if you want like we know that we can't stop you but like we're going to obstruct every uh, every step of the process that we can. Uh, And of course, they couldn't stop anything because of the way that the law is written. But the way that I read things like indigenous title, and the court decisions around indigenous title, and also having that experience, I'm a bit more sympathetic to people who are like, like, I don't like the nimbyism, but I'm a bit more sympathetic to this idea that people should have a say about what runs through their backyard in a meaningful kind of way. And I know the National Energy Board does this and all these other sorts of things. But I wouldn't want to be too dismissive of, say, some of those concerns.
2: It it wasn't meant to be dismissive. It's really more just the federal government should at least be trying to resolve the social license issue, not sitting back and letting it basically gut one province's economy. So the quest in Alberta for a long time has been, and that was why Jim Prentice came back originally, was to work on the social license issue. And I'm not a partisan person or anything like that. I just keep bringing him up because I do think that was a turning point in Alberta. Uh, you got the attempt to unite the right the first time, even though it wasn't necessary to continue governing. You had a balanced budget. You had this idea that there had to be resource development done a different way. And the message coming out of Alberta today is that's not what's going on. It's just anger. We're getting to market. And that's what comes when you don't resolve these And I think the land title issues are legitimate, important, and critical. And that's what the federal government should have been working on for the last five years. And they haven't done it. So that's where I think Albertans have a right to be frustrated and angry that if it's up to the feds to figure this out, they have an obligation to figure out how to make the rules so that you know if you produce, you can get to market. Mm -hmm. And Alberta has been losing on the spread, remember, between the price it receives on oil and the price it could be getting if it had better transportation. The farmers are getting hurt because they're using rail, which is crowding out cars for other things. So everybody's getting hurt by this. And the oil, ironically, is still coming to St. John now by tanker. And I'm pretty sure the federal government's actually paying the Irving refinery to take it. <laughs> so everyone's losing out west and everyone's winning in the east. That's where I just think the fair deal panel's onto something. I just don't know if their policies are the right ones.
0: Well, and that's definitely something that that I would say I've seen – because I, I spend my time looking at partisan political messaging and trying to figure out who, who benefits from this, who benefits from this idea or, or putting the narrative out there and, and getting the buy-in. And it's frustrating to me because I'm looking at, we can blame this. We can blame, uh, we can blame the federal government when it happens to be, uh, opposition coming out of BC. You know, we can blame our provincial government when it's, also global oil prices. We can blame whoever, but it doesn't seem like we are actually putting that blame in the right place, which bothers me because if we, if we don't identify the correct problem, we are really not going to get the correct solution. We're heading on 40 years of the same questions and the same solutions for the wrong problems.
3: So this is where research is actually really useful to explain this particular instance. So when doug said this is about political expediency um this is correct and based on and i have i've got this based on empirical research that comes from the united states that we're extending into the canadian context uh that also links to older conversations that we've had about this um so it feels like it's ecclesiastical but i think that there's a new flavor on this that um merits some serious consideration so like The ecclesiastical part is that nobody understands equalization. And when you say things like, but shouldn't Canadians have access to similar levels of healthcare and education from coast to coast, folks are like, yeah. And then you explain like how the money works behind it. And they're like, that'll make sense. And you're like, great. You support equalization. They're like, no, I don't. And so like, I don't think this is going to change. So like leaving that part aside, This idea of like resentment, particularly this like regional resentment is also new. Like Phil Resnick at UBC wrote a book about this called literally the politics of resentment, like BC regionalism Mm -hmm. and Canadian unity published in 1998. It reads like it's ecclesiastical in the (laughs) Alberta context. What's different is this concept called polarization and this helps explain the anger. And I see the fair deal panel here as an exercise in polarization rather than an exercise in identifying the correct questions and trying to find the correct answer for them. So, in this context, polarization doesn't mean taking extreme views. It means being sorted into camps. Um, so this is the idea that you start to develop an identity based on the groups that you think that you belong to. And so, this involves a regional group, obviously. And we've all talked about how Albertans and other folks in other regions, like, we're clearly sorted into regional groups based on where we live. This makes sense. But what we're seeing increasingly in Canadian politics is that this is also following along partisan lines in the U.S., where you can actually empirically verify that the policies that the republicans were advocating for were like directly contrary to their material interests like it actually would cost them money to to do what they were doing mm-hmm. and to advocate for what they were advocating for if they actually got it and then when they did they celebrated saying yeah but we won and this is where i see we've got this bit coming up in alberta and i have been increasingly with the reaction to the ndp winning in 2015 like as a political scientist, I would say standard economic voting argument. When you anticipate that the future economy is going to tank, you punish the incumbent. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter what they're saying. This is as old as time, <laughs> or at least as old as political science research in the 20th century. Anyway, um so the reaction to that, though, is you get the formation of the UCP and this idea that them, they can't be in government. It has to be us. And if you are part of us, then you will react against these particular kinds of, like, So you see policy reactions that are basically not particularly coherent. And we see this in public opinion data where when it was New Democrats running deficits, um, some people were like, this is the worst thing ever. Uh, As soon as it's a UCP deficit, they're like, I'm okay with deficits now. This suggests that it's not about the deficit. It's about the color that happens to be on the deficit, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you see some of... When I read the Fair Deal panel, what I... See, and when I, this is a bigger part of a bigger strategy with government messaging, but what I see is this idea that they want to make this aggrieved Albertan, like the, the true Alberta identity. And so that if you don't think this way, you're not actually a good Albertan. They wouldn't actually explicitly say it this way, but it kind of like the undercurrent, I think, is quite clear to see. We feel it on social media, an, yeah. an Albertan. Yeah. And then this is the idea that if you are with us, you are a particular kind of partisan as well, which means that the goal is not actually achieving policy. The goal is making sure that your group um, wins. And so uh, and this is where the anger and the emotion comes in. And so what the research in the U.S. shows really clearly is that the people who are the most angry still hold really moderate views about policy. It's not about the substance of the policy that gets people to act this way. It's about beating the other team. And so I like, and this is one of those things where it's unfortunate that polarization is also attached to extreme views, because that's not the polarization that we mean. And I think this is easily conflated in public conversations about this stuff. So, like, I know in some of the questions that you sent us, some of it is like, so why is this cyclical? Why do we keep doing this? And, that, like, there's lots of reasons for why we keep doing it, where there's, like, the moment where you actually, like, do the study, you get the answers, and then there may or may not be will to act on them. And then you kind of forget that you did that thing. And you're like, oh, like, we will just reinvent the wheel. Like, research does this too. It's amazing. <laughs> you used read stuff from 20 years ago, so like, oh, that idea I had is not fresh. Nope. Anyway. <laughs> So like, I think this is there's something where like, I'm not surprised that we get this cycle. But the thing that I think is new about it is that the anger is being used as a deliberate political tool, because it is short term, it's a very expedient short term strategy for some political actors who I think understand the substance of this a lot better. And I am finding it very difficult to escape the conclusion that they simply don't care that this is not the way to actually get a solution on the substance. What it is, is it's really good at getting them donations and it's good at bringing people back into the flock. And that's, that's the goal.
1: Sorry. I have to jump in because yeah. I, that's exactly what this is a, about. I think, uh, Dr. Thomas is, is 100% right. I mean, I, in my years in politics, I think the biggest thing that irritates me is hypocrisy. That's my trigger point. And so here you have the current premier of Alberta lining up this fair deal panel when he was, <laughs> the one that signed off on the equalization.
0: He wrote the formula. He wrote
1: the formula. He was the one that when, when, when I was still in politics, we went and asked for more immigrants to come to Alberta because we had, we didn't have enough people to work the jobs. And he said, no, no more immigration. We're changing the policy. And he told us it was to feed three ridings in Ontario that they needed to win to continue to form government. And it, it like, and now he's the guy leading the charge saying, this is what we're going to do. And he, And then to turn around, I mean, here's the the hypocrisy that just irritates me. We spent over 20 years trying to build a social license in Alberta for our oil sands. And the first thing that he does is pull down the blinds when thousands of environmental protesters show up on the steps of the legislature. Instead of talking to them, he gave them two middle fingers and said, go away. And then he's wondering why investments are pulling out of ethical funds. It, that would be investing in our oil sands. He he set up the situation to deliberately make Albertans mad. And the irony is that some of these recommendations are are actually going to do damage and harm to Albertans and even specifically rural Albertans. They have this. Um, they're demanding more representation based on population, so Alberta gets more seats, and and most of Western Canada would wind up with more seats. Great, except if he turns around because he he wins that argument and the courts say yes more equal representation by population, rural Alberta will lose six seats to Edmonton and Calgary. And the rural Albertans don't even realize they're demanding more fair representation on one side. But if they support this, they're going to wind up losing it provincially. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad, but they don't even realize that that the stuff that they're asking for is going to do them drastic harm but you're right dr thomas you're exactly right it it doesn't matter as long as we win we, we we've got an enemy now and we need to defeat them even if it means killing ourselves to do it
3: well that rep by pop i have to admit i laughed at that part in the report because like they're correct like Alberta and bc we kind of get a bit screwed because of population density but the place that gets screwed the most is toronto like, are, are we are we really sure that we want to like give the center of the universe? Like, I, I'm being a bit salty, but it's just kind of like the, premier, the fair jail panel is making the argument that would help the center of the universe the most. Like, great, this is they
0: get seven. Right. <laughs> In
3: that, here's my irritation with this. They didn't, like, they dance around the fact that the Senate floor rule exists. Um, but like somebody reading this would be like, wait a minute, why does Prince Edward Island get to keep any seats? And it's like, cause the Constitution, right? Like, so the, the number of times I've been like, cause the Constitution, where it's not clearly, like, clearly public education is not part of this report either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm clearly at the rant stage at this
2: point where it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> so, just one point about the invisible perpetual enemy is when COVID hit and I was getting worried about some of the stuff going on, I went back and read 1984 by George Orwell. And I was heartened by that as long as we're vigilant against the invisible enemy who could pounce at any time, it's easy to keep your population going in the right direction. So, there's a sense in which the messaging built around fear and anger is quite helpful for getting a regional interest onto the docket of the federal government. It's also being used in Eastern Canada and Quebec that somehow they're all being not taken care of by the federal government right now. So the prime minister's in tough across the country. It's just easier to ignore Alberta because he doesn't lose seats if it doesn't go his way. But yes, Newfoundland, there's he's to, all over Newfoundland. Nothing to win or lose,
0: yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's bailing them out. They've gone basically totally broke over Muskrat Falls. The federal government owns 80% of it. Uh, they're trying to avoid going to $0.23 cents a kilowatt hour for Newfoundlanders. It should go to $0.75 cents to pay the debt. And that province is basically bankrupt, and no one noticed it because the feds quietly came in and the Bank of Canada bought their bonds. If Alberta gets in that position, I don't think you'd see the same attempt to help them, or help you guys, help whoever's mm. still there. My kids still live in Alberta, so i got to be careful. <laughs> uh But that's the asymmetry that comes in is that the rest of Canada, when the hard times come, there's sort of a quiet rescue. When Alberta hits hard times, there's a callousness towards it, which is, well, you should have done a better job when you had it. And that's where I think some of the anger, it's not just all made up. There's a true frustration. Yeah, Uh, but
3: I don't think we understand that hard times in Newfoundland or like places that had the cod fishery collapse are like our hard times, right? Like we still have the provincial government, releasing the budget saying, um, look at the Alberta tax advantage. And this is in every Alberta government budget document I've ever read ever. Uh, If we just taxed at the second most lowest level of taxation, we'd raise $14 billion. So I think like credibly it would be like, use some of your fiscal capacity and then see if you're still destitute. And for us, the answer would always be no.
2: I mean, maybe that'll change in 30 years, but. But the challenge is Newfoundland and Alberta both have public sector pay that's so far above everywhere else that, like if you look at just professor salaries alone, like to move east, I took a fairly large pay cut because the pay scales just aren't as high across the country. But so isn't the issue of
0: living less in New Brunswick than it is in Alberta. No,
2: I've got sales tax. <laughs> I've got a much higher top marginal tax rate. I've got uh, well, property tax. Well, everyone has alone. a higher marginal tax rate than Alberta. That's no, but it's so one of the things I've been looking at because we're not required to go on campus under COVID at least till January is we started mm-hmm. thinking about if they're not going to open the high schools here, we could move to Alberta, put our son in school there, and the tax difference alone, if I was an Alberta resident, would pay for the year's rent in Alberta where we had our house in New Brunswick. like The gap is huge. So you move for more lifestyle reasons than fiscal advantage, but Alberta's fiscal advantage through the tax system is eroding. The political cost of living there just because of the anger and hostility means it's got to be less pleasant than it was five years ago, if that's the mood. Oh, it's super uh, it's unpleasant. around.
0: It's incredibly unpleasant, but lots it, to talk about.
2: Yeah, it, but again, it's your society. If people are fairly happy and agreeable, it's a much more pleasant place to be. In British Columbia, they seem to tolerate really high tax rates because of climate, and because they all have a groupthink in the lower mainland. And the rest of BC hates the lower mainland, but <laughs> that's the way it goes. So to me, the, the big challenge with a lot of this is that we wind up fighting over who can pay more tax, who should take a pay cut, and we don't look around and pay attention that even through equalization and everything else, we just have completely absurd outcomes like it's not the level of services that we're adjusting, it's actually the level of pay in the public sector that's adjusting with equalization. Healthcare spending's doubled across the country for 20 years, and it didn't increase any access or service, but it did increase everyone's pay. 80% went to doctors and nurses through higher pay levels. And that's the part we're not allowed to talk about in Canada because it's always back to who's not paying enough right now. And I think, again, in the Alberta, the challenge is that the pay scales in the public sector, it's true you undertax, but you also overpay compared to other jurisdictions. And that's really the Ken cool point that he keeps bringing up is that if you paid at the average, you'd basically be balancing the books. And again, I'll go back to Jim Prentice. He offered a budget that was a balance, And because he made some unfortunate comments, like look in the mirror and do the math or whatever he said to Rachel Notley in the debate, we're now in a situation where it's back to your polarized on should we be raising tax or should we be cutting pay? And the reality is, it's probably going to be a combination of the two to get back to balance. Oil's not coming back the way it was. so. So
3: this is where the angry approach doesn't work. So if you're going to be looking at, say, the last five years in Alberta, the previous New Democrat government was able to get the physicians to like, not take a pay raise, it like, or to at least lay the foundation to actually start moving in the direction to maybe fix that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's specifically, physicians, like, as somebody who is really aware of what the sunshine list looks like at the University of Calgary, I am not on it. So, like, <laughs> when we talk about professor salaries, there's professor salaries and there's professor salaries, and I don't have one <laughs> of those. Um, but I do have the student loans to pay off because we user-fused ourselves, user-fee our way through that. In any event, um, if we're looking at what happened with, like, how the rhetoric has changed in Alberta around physicians, what we've done is we've literally, like, is there any goodwill to moving into any kind of negotiation to even address any of this stuff now? No. no. What we've just done is made everybody livid, like, livid to the point where we're, like, it's going to go to court. People are just, we're going to spend years litigating this and, like... I mean, so there's there's a brain drain, I suspect, because physicians are mobile, rural physicians in particular. So if we're looking at how rural Alberta is not coming out the winner in this, like this is another element where we could look at it. But if that's the thing that we want to talk about and kind of like how are we actually going to substantively address the problems, I keep seeing things from this current iteration of the provincial government where for... Reasons that I find challenging to understand, they're taking an approach that just makes everybody angry and substantively doesn't actually address any of the issues, which, you know, this could be the same thing.
2: When I moved to Alberta in 1993, I was one of the lucky new faculty that there was no offset when they cut our pay 5%. Everyone else got a merit pay that sort of offset it. So they were stood still. So my first experience in Alberta was getting a pay cut from Ralph Klein. Now, to be fair, he also set the seeds. Once the debt was paid off, everyone's salaries went wildly through the roof because he lost control with no fiscal anchor. And that was partly why I think he went under the bus in his own party because he lost. He was always viewed there was Ralph one and Ralph two and Ralph two just didn't uh, satisfy the base enough. But these things are always tricky to do because in 1993, I just remember being yelled at in a few occasions by downtown people who said, you with your job security and tenure, which I didn't have at the time, they felt that I was entitled and coddled and they kept talking about my pension. And I'm like late 20s. I don't even know why people care about a pension. It was, uh, to me, I was just thrilled to have a job in 1993. But the, that sort of is coming in again, especially in our region where 30% of the workforce is public sector with pensions and protected. And our business sector right now through COVID is tanking hard so that you can start to see the resentment building. And that's where, again, I think you're right. There's, someone wants blood at this point more than anything. And if a we little. can just show a bit of sacrifice, then we're allowed to move on after would be the logic. But a lot of people left Alberta in the 90s. They didn't like the scene. And one of the reasons I think this keeps repeating is Alberta's a giant mining town where you always have a new cohort coming in and reliving the boom and bust. And in the background, you've got your long-term Albertans who have just seen the movie over and over, and they can't understand why they can't get to a savings plan, why they can't get to the stability. But it's because people like me are always coming in. And when times get tough, we just go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think that's actually, I think that's a good point, though, is that People who are mobile, people who come in for that Alberta advantage—they do. They—they just—they leave when it's done. But at the same time, I mean, our our average age is going up. People are still retiring elsewhere.
1: They're not just retiring elsewhere. They were millennials have been leaving Calgary for the many for several years now, so that their average age is going up. Instead of being the youngest city in Canada. It's, it's going to wind up being the oldest because they don't want their lives to just be oil and gas and they don't want to ride the boom and bust cycle and so they're looking for more stability and 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 here we are <laughs> for 30 years trying to diversify the economy and the first thing we do with the downturn is cut any supports and funding and incentives to technology companies and startups and instead we put billions of dollars into a pipeline that won't be built yay for diversification and for making sure Alberta has a prosperous future we just double down on on the very problem that that we can't seem to get out of, mm-hmm. and yet young people are still moving, and we can't, we we think it's everybody else's fault. Sorry, that's my rant. <clears throat>
0: <laughs> but it's also a good rant because without without young people staying, and that was was that part of the road ahead, Melanie? Do you remember there was a someone someone? I don't know if it was a survey that they had done or they just you know sought out. Young people who had, who were on their way out, like were looking at edu- educating themselves elsewhere, or even had just graduated and said, there's, I, I don't feel like there's future opportunities in, for me in Calgary, so I'm going to Ontario or something.
3: Yeah, so there, the Road Ahead project has had a number of stages with it, um, where there's these kind of large Public opinion surveys that are done with this random sample so we can generalize about uh, or we'd be confident that what that sample is telling us is matches pretty closely to what Albertans broadly think. But then paired with that, it was a different technique where we used focus groups to have these kind of in-depth interviews and conversations with folks to kind of explain more in more detail kind of like the roots of where where their opinions were coming from. Uh, and this is where we would find like a number of things came out of that particular part of the project uh one of the things that becomes really clear uh is this idea like it kind of busts the 2015 myth that the reason why the NDP won in 2015 was because Alberta is a young province and like there's a lot of assumptions about what age does in terms of how people think and feel about politics that are wrong, like really quite spectacularly <laughs> wrong. In fact, like there are, there are age effects, but like they're not what people think they are. Like nice. it's, it's, um, well, for me, um, like I think the subtext of what I heard was an awful lot of what I also heard as like a teen in the nineties where. Uh, we were dryland grain farmers and like both my brother and I, like we didn't really voice it at the time, but like we were not like literally everybody who could in my community got to university and got themselves some kind of post-secondary thing to get themselves off the farm because we all knew that the farm was not going to pay the bills and certainly not going to pay the bills for as many families as could have been there based on the number of less young folks that were there. And we had a lot of anxiety about that. And one of the things I hear from a lot of younger not only younger folks, but people doing much the same thing where they're saying, I see a transition coming and I'm going to get myself the tools that might enable me to like ride this out and to figure out where I'm going to land mm-hmm. in a way that's um, advantageous, less painful, whatever. Uh, but there's a lot of things that you know, like I would hear from the focus groups that we had in other places where other folks are acknowledging that anxiety where they see that there is a change coming. And this is a thing where I think, while people might not like what we're seeing from the international oil market in particular, there's a message that like, there's a memo that's coming. Like we've had bust before. I mean, I don't remember one having lasted um, six years. We're at five and a half years now from the 2014 one, Mind you, I was born in 81. So like the 80s could have been different. I don't know. Um, but what I what I hear in a lot of that focus group data is a lot of boom nostalgia and anger. Anxiety, that it's not coming back, and what people are grasping at, and what we could see in that in that data, were people trying to find someone to blame or to attribute responsibility to for something that otherwise is well outside of everybody's control. So there's that, and then there's younger folks who, some of whom are like sharing that sentiment, but others who are also um, seeing it and just saying, "Okay, I've read the writing on the wall, and I'm going to figure out something way else to navigate it." Right. Yeah. And like, I, I'm really sympathetic to that as a, it's like, I didn't want to leave the farm. I really like the farm actually. But like, I also, we made the right call. Like the, in terms of the, I mean, we've had, this is not the first kind of economic transition that Alberta has had to deal with or certain sectors of Alberta have had to deal with probably won't be the last. Um, but because of the identity that's associated with things like oil and gas, I can feel Yeah, like, I'm I'm not surprised that we see a lot of that anger and stuff like that associated with it. But it's not an age thing. Like, I think some of the reactions might be structured by age. But I think, like I say, when it's about uh, people thinking that lots of young folks do stuff just because they're young, like, the assumptions required to make those arguments work, that
0: we don't actually have evidence to support a lot of it. Let's go back to a lot of these kind of hurt rural the most. What happens if these are put in place? does that actually make Alberta's position stronger? Because that's the goal, right? Granted, they're not looking at the economy or anything else or what they're going to have to pay to do this, but they are looking at somehow this will make Alberta stronger. And I don't even think it's leverage with Ottawa, really, that people want at the ground level. They want to return to the boom, and that's not coming. So if we can make Alberta stronger by own police force, own pension plan, um, uh, fair representation... Are any of these recommendations going to achieve what people are looking for them to achieve?
1: Well, there's there's a couple of good recommendations in there. I mean, okay, reducing, see? <laughs> reducing trade barriers. I mean, we right. we already worked on the new newest partnership and that was one of the things that arose out of the first panel that we needed to reduce our interprovincial trade barriers. And it supports the mindset that, you know, why are we inhibiting each other from economic growth and prosperity? We should be working together more instead of working in, Contradiction. The recommendation about northern Canadian development. I mean, hallelujah! I mean, Canada's future is in making sure that we have a strong north and that we have some representation there. That's, but that has nothing to do, neither of those, with a fair deal panel. So I think they slipped a couple of in in there to to get people um, interested but I mean the whole mindset that we should opt out of the CPP and create an Alberta pension plan when we did the first panel tour uh, 17 years ago people kept saying we have a younger population we can lower our rates and you know what then we can take the pension and invest in Alberta instead of everywhere else except yay let's double down on the situation we would take those the pension and invest in Alberta and when Alberta's economy goes down so does the pension it compounds the issue I mean the Anyone who invests your, in a personal pension plan knows that you diversify so that you you have stability in the future, mm-hmm. which is what the Canada Pension Plan does right now. So, it, and and hey, if all these young people keep leaving Calgary and rural communities and moving to somewhere else where well, there's more opportunity, because we're going to have 10 years of 20 billion dollar year debts, and then our average age goes up and our investments go down with the Alberta Pension Plan, do you think Canada will let us back in when we? Right, the whole argument is we have the youngest age we could lower our premiums and invest in Alberta. Except when that doesn't work out, we've we've done it to ourselves. But then we we do. They're saying in this report we should have uh, uh, referendums to to deal with that equalization payment. Something that isn't even Alberta's jurisdiction. We should have a, a referendum and a discussion to decide um, if we get more immigration. We should have a referendum so that we can collect the Canadian and Alberta taxes, which isn't even legal and not our jurisdiction you can't it's like me saying i want to collect my neighbor's taxes too and i'll pay them on his behalf that's not my <laughs> damn business and it doesn't work that way and I'm, and yet everyone is is so angry they're saying yes more referendums and the government of the day is saying that we referendums albertans deserve a say but did they have say on the doctor's contracts did they have say on the cuts to education did they have say in putting billions of dollars into a pipeline that got shut down the next week again i mean come on This is farcical and just feeding people's angers with hypocrisy, which I remember the first, you know, referendum stuff that was done. It was Stockwell Day that was championing that. And I I was one of those guys that thought we should have a say, direct democracy is important. And Stockwell was like, yes, we should. Until someone said, let's have a referendum to change Stockwell's day name to Doris Day. That
0: was Rick Mercer. I just watched it. Oh, Melanie, you posted that, didn't you?
3: So my students will be like, "Why do you keep giving examples back from like when I was born?" Because literally, they're all born like after 2000 now, and I was like, "Because you need to know everybody used to watch television, and this is the first amazing use of the internet in Canadian politics ever." And my the worst part of it was like, poor Doris Day got wind of it and was like, felt the need to make a statement about how seriously she took politics or something. We were like, "No, Dor, just 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 do what we're supposed to do and laugh at this one." Like it was the brilliant like glory days of Canadian politics satire right around then. But like, that was the point. The point was to show how risible it was. All this to say, like, I'm, I'm all for direct democracy. Like, I don't think direct democracy is a bad thing, inherently. And if you look at research from places that use referenda all of the time, like, way too much like Switzerland, it turns out that, like, it doesn't necessarily do bad things to their democracy, but the point is that they've always done it. And so for me, yeah. the, chain, the the question to ask is, how would changing to this particular system, uh, what would this do? And if, I think people would be kidding themselves if they thought it was going to do anything other than to make, like, just to whip up anger for any other kind of bull. Like, the thing that I find really alarming uh, about this particular referendum on equalization, in addition to the idea that they're using the term referendum wrong, because it can't be legally binding, because it's not the correct, Way to run a referendum to amend the constitution but like and also like nobody understands what equalization is the, what concerns me is that it's running to be run in parallel with the municipal election which means that it's going to be framing how people are voting in municipal elections like it's going to be the issue that dominates if we think that that's just coincidental and not by deliberate design as a way to like get people to be thinking in a particular kind of headspace as they're voting in local elections i think we would be kidding ourselves this is not, that's a manipulation of a democratic process. That's not increasing democratic transparency or increasing democracy. Like it, it's one of those ones, it, like it's using a democratic tool for context or an outcome that I think is potentially problematic. And if you couple that with campaign finance changes that have been brought in this week, like that really- We've really had a really
0: bad week here, her. <laughs>
3: Yeah. <laughs> All this to say, like if we were actually, there's plenty of other ways to do public consultation. I would argue that the way that Doug's committee did this particular, did this particular study is a deep and fulsome way to do public consultation. Like it doesn't have to look like a referendum. It can look like surveys. It can look like talking to the public. It can look like expert consultation. There's, there's any number of ways to skin a cat in this context.
1: To jump in for a sec, the, the, the challenge with referendums is that or plebiscites that are not binding. The the If you're going to do it, it has to be about something um, that's not overly complex or it has to be um, in conjunction with the very vibrant education about what the complexity of the issue is. I mean, otherwise you wind up with Bodie McBoatface. I mean, people turn things into jokes. They don't want to know information. In fact, in California, I mean, they have re- referendums all the time. But they have votes on spending initiatives and votes on tax-raising initiatives. And California, every year, is teetering on the brink of bankruptcy because everyone votes for the new spending initiative. No one votes for the tax incentive. So people are are viewing these as one-offs without understanding the complexity of a whole system. And you get into the the pension plan and the the equalization system and all sorts of complex issues. I don't know that a referendum is the best way to address that. And, you know, frankly... They're still pitching having referendums on issues Albertans can't control and that are not, not our jurisdiction, and not giving Albertans referendums on the stuff that is in our control. That, to me, again, is hypocrisy, and that's my trigger, and that's why I'm ranting again. <laughs> <Sorry>.
2: <laughs> I, I just want to point out that Alberta does have a precedent for this weird approach to voting for stuff that they don't have power over, and that was the choice <laughs> to elect senators. Uh, so Yes, <laughs> There is no binding piece to that but every so often we seem to go in we had to vote for these senators that I don't know if any of them ever actually got in or not but that was sort of two, part of a push to make it a triple oh, e senate was it was one of the earlier grievances they wanted dealt with
3: The only and time I've ever like angered a poll clerk and she was like a delightful octogenarian like dere- like central casting called and got the warmest grandmother to come and be this poll clerk and it was I think the 2004 provincial election where or 2003 no 2000 whichever one happened after 2004 I should know this as somebody who studies these things but um they gave us two ballots and I was like this is my MLA this is my senator this is my like I made sure that the I had like the MLA one, which I wanted, um, and I rejected my Senate ballot because I knew it had it would have to be marked in a very particular kind of way. She was so angry at me, and I was like, but it's a dumb election. It doesn't do anything. I think this is a ridiculous, like, risible process. So I rejected my ballot, and she was (laughs) like... Anyway, I would point out that, like, the things I'm seeing at the Senate now are actually some of the most interesting changes to the institutions, this idea that you're getting nonpartisan appointments and that they, like they take the bit and like give the government hell just on like a kind of more substantive grounds. Like political science is watching what's happening to the current Senate with those, that particular like Trudeau appointment process being like, I don't think he intended that, but we're okay with it. Suddenly we all want to be appointed to the Senate now. Cause we know that we wouldn't be beholden into a party caucus and we could just be like annoying policy blogs. Notice that nobody's talking about how like, hear how that shift to the Senate is actually maybe substantively interesting, right? And then one of the most interesting senators I've been watching is Paula Simons from Alberta. And I watched her get viciously attacked by the provincial government for having the audacity to take a close read at some policies that the provincial government didn't like. Like, yeah. you, like if this was consistent, like I, I read really with Doug, that like you could call it hypocrisy, but it's also like, I keep coming back to the idea that it's not about the substance. Um, it's about partisan fervor and using the anger as a political tool and deliberately and, stoking it for its use as a political tool.
0: And it's also about sleight of hand. Pay attention to this over here. Don't pay attention to this. And, and kind of like you said, here are things that do, that, that we do have control over. And we're not letting you anywhere near that as Albertans. But here's some things we can't do anything about. So why don't you guys go get ready for a referendum on it?
3: One of the old generalizations that we have to blow up in political science research is one that I'm sad to let go. And it was this idea of rational ignorance. And so it was the idea that most people uh, paying attention to politics is costly in terms of time and effort, and it's complicated. And so most folks, it's the reasonable, rational thing to do is to just kind of check out, trust your representatives to, you know, act in good faith. Um, And you can check back in at the start of an election campaign. And we've got good evidence that folks that know nothing at the start of the campaign when it comes to certain things, like uh, they they learn as much over the course of the campaign so they catch up and they are as knowledgeable as um, the most knowledgeable folks by the end of it. Um, so we would say it's like a kind of economic way of approaching it, but it's like the rational ignorance argument um, was really intuitive, but it rests on the assumption that the people who are doing the work of representation are doing it in good faith in the
0: okay. inter-election period um, so that you don't have to pay attention because you control don't have them. to watch their every move. you don't have to read all of the legislation. you don't have to check it with the legislation that it references. It is incredibly time consuming and there is no way that there's no way that that my neighbors on average are doing this. No and
3: like I don't want to say that every set of representatives ever elected prior to like right now were amazing at this. like I'm not gonna suggest that folks didn't manipulate the process for their own partisan political benefit, like at any other point in time. But what I see is a process that I think is just being constantly set up as like a uh, way to just achieve partisan gain in the short term, regardless of corrosive long-term consequences. And this is not unique to Alberta, um, though I see quite a lot of it here. Like you can see some of it at the federal level. You certainly see this on like appalling displays south of the border in the United States. Um, you saw it in Brexit. Like Brexit is also one of these things where if you looked at the like economic consequences of Brexit, particularly for farmers, again, and, and things in, in, in those lines, they were super supportive. But like when you actually got into the details, it was not good for them at all. So I'm sad to let this generalization go that rational ignorance is actually the best approach because we used to know that it was, but I don't think that's fair anymore to
2: say that. So one... When- One argument that's been coming out much more in the East, maybe not as much in the West, that would feed into that, is that the perception is that there's been growth of governing from the center, which means the number of people who are actually influential is getting smaller and smaller, which means you can't just leave it to your local MLA or member of parliament uh, to represent you because it's not going to go anywhere. So that leads to much more of this toxic activism That if you can at least start a fire and force the prime minister to come in and talk to you about it, you've got more headway than going through the traditional channel of, we elected this person to make decisions on our behalf. We just had a toxic anti-vaccination vote in our legislature that was largely to out the Green Party and a minority. They abstained. And you should see the vitriol being pitched towards them. But everyone knows they've got the anti-vaxxers as part of their base in rural New Brunswick. Yeah. So so by forcing them to vote against it, the view was you could basically crumble the liberal green coalition and allow the conservative alliance. So they then immediately argued we need a referendum. So sort of they're trying to use these issues to, to bring it around. And a lot of this is we don't know where these bills are coming from because the premiers didn't want to deal with these sets of free vote. So there's a lot of discipline that's being lost because of this control from the center. And that may be the deficit that's leading to a lot of these problems. Like you say that they come up with these recommendations. It doesn't seem to be consultative. It's just imposed. And we have to ask ourselves what led them to start doing this. Like how did this become the successful model rather than being democratic and listening to people and trying to translate those desires from the electorate, not from your base? And the change I've seen in my career in 25 years, in 1993, we were asked, would it be a good idea to leave the Canada Pension Plan? Now I'm more likely to get a phone call saying, can you make an argument as to why it's a good uh, reason to go? They've made the decision. The role of the professor and the evidence person now is to create the evidence base to justify the predetermined decision. Whereas to be fair to government, 25 years ago, it was much more common. They wanted the evidence to help inform a decision but that's gone. We're and, basically, we're part of a communication strategy if they come to us.
3: The frustration thing is that I don't think that we thought, I think we thought our institutions would be more resilient to this. And I think my colleagues in the United States are watching this where, now in fairness, they're going through things where Donald Trump says something and they're like, I go and teach the presidency in an hour and I have to blow up my lecture based on what just happened. Like my hair is on fire. What do I do? Right. So like, could be worse, but but I like Donald Savoy, the governing from the center. Like it's interesting for political scientists of my generation. This is the canon, and for colleagues of mine, I'm note all named Ian Brody, who used to who was Stephen Harper's first chief of staff. He doesn't agree with the canon, but the argument that he makes is primarily that, like, individuals simply don't have the time to control as much as what people think that they control. And I'm not persuaded that that's the, like, that's not reassuring, actually, because what it comes, what it doesn't have as an explanation is how there's the institutional check and balance to keep exactly this from happening, saying we've done we know the decision we want to make, um, and so give me the evidence to support the decision I want to make, as opposed to what's the best outcome, what's the best decision to make for this particular question.
0: Could that also roll around too with the situation that we're in uh, technologically and the access to information that we have? This is how everyone is making their decisions lately, it seems, is this is what I want. I go on the internet, I find exactly what I want, I know what I want
1: that's there's confirmation bias is running everything now we in fact google's whole search engine is designed to find you more of what it is you're looking for so we don't even hear diverse opinions anymore we we get what we want to believe confirmed and i I mean we don't talk about it enough that People actually believe what they hear seven times. And I I teach it in my communications class at the university. You you will show up at work in the morning and you'll hear something and you'll say, that is outrageous. There's no way that's possibly true. Then you'll hear it again at 10. Then you'll hear it again when you leave for lunch. Then you'll hear it again when you come back for lunch. Then you hear it at the coffee break. Then you hear it on the radio on your way home. And then you get home and your spouse says it to you and you're like, well, maybe there's some truth to this. No new information, no new facts, no supporting evidence. But after you hear it seven times, you start to think, maybe there's some truth to that. And then, and then we're also of the mindset now that our opinions matter more than facts or information. I mean, I'm entitled to my opinion. Really? Your opinion might be uninformed and stupid, but you're entitled to it? <laughs> are, are people who believe the Holocaust didn't happen also entitled to their opinion? That's garbage. You need, you're entitled to have an informed opinion. And if you have an ignorant opinion, you're entitled to get that criticized, ridiculed and run down. And, and then you start to think, maybe I need to find out some more information. But right now your opinion is what's mostly valued. And then politicians, instead of being those informed folks, they're trying to win over people's opinions and get that support. And so they quit being these, these, these critical analyzing thinkers that evaluate all the evidence of a complex issue and then tell constituents you know here's here's why I'm going to vote the way I am and Instead, they gather up the public opinion, which is uninformed at the best of times now, and they say, Great, you're angry, I am too. And they just feed it so that they can continue the momentum and get elected. And it's continuous. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have with political leadership now. And I'm ranting again, I'm sorry.
3: But like everything that Doug is saying has a strong foundation in research. So, like, stuff in the 60s was saying people's belief systems are not coherent, they're not based on like, The foundational values and beliefs are a thing, but like policy positions never really logically flowed from it. It was from other sorts of, other sorts of processes. Though this idea that group identity matters as much as what it does now, I think we were a little bit more sanguine about it. But like partisans are, so confirmation bias goes along with motivated reasoning and partisans are motivated reasoners, right? They want to fit the narrative to like stick with their team, right? And so like, it's interesting. Like for me, the most, distressing study about the stuff that has to do with Stephen Colbert. So back when Stephen Colbert was doing the Colbert Report, um, the first bit that we got out of this that was like the canary in the coal mine was this idea that depending on people's ideology, their ideology structured whether or not they thought he was telling the truth. And so people on the left thought that the Colbert Report was satire. People on the ideological right thought that it was, everybody agreed it was funny, but they thought it was news. You'll note, how many lefties do you know when John Stewart was doing the daily show they say well i get my news from the daily show because it's funny but it's true and so you can see that like like there's no one is immune from this stuff right the difficult thing is that there's also really good research to show that when somebody's decided that they're correct about something uh presenting correcting information to say actually you're wrong about that what's actually going on is a b and c not x y and z often the response is to get people to retrench into their further into their incorrect opinion. So like a really current example from how this works in Alberta, a conversation with a buddy where she said, you know, I'm really disappointed that universities are dealing with the budget shortfall by raising tuition fees. I think that you could find other ways to cut, like professors should travel less. And I was like, hold on, the university doesn't pay me to travel. I travel if I need to for the... Um, service of a research project. And I have to justify why I need to go on that trip. And I have to, it's like regulated very strictly by a whole set of rules. And oh, by the way, it's not provincial money, like the provincial government can whistle Dixie about like, what they think I should do about that. Um, because it's a federal research grant, that's like administered arm's length, like they have nothing to say about that, we have to report it, because the auditor general makes us as is appropriate. But like, that's not a university expenditure. That's me using my research grant. And she says, I don't care. You should still not be able to do that because you should cut, like you should cut that stuff. And it's like, but like legally, <laughs> like the legality of it, the, all the way that like, literally the realities of that particular bunch of stuff didn't matter for folks that were you know, angry about something related to university expenditures that had been fully misrepresented to the public.
1: And just keep thinking about the, homer simpson episode when he wants to buy a gun and they say sir there's a three-day waiting period And he goes but i'm angry now (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: i i don't know what do we have i guess do we have any final thoughts on i don't know should we do an over under on the next time that there will be another government-led fair deal panel it seems to come around every 15 years are we heading for the end of it, or is it, or is this just going I to continue, continue in
3: perpetuity? I can't project to twenty thirty five. I see too many uncertainties, <laughs> sorts of things, and I kinda don't want to project twenty thirty five. One of the things that would be really interesting that I have been watching, though, the report talks very clearly about how Alberta should be more like Quebec because mm-hmm. Quebec manages to like present, manages to have its demands met. I think in ways that other Canadians might find frustrating, and. The research-based explanation I would have for that comes from, like, not only my own work, but people like Richard Johnston out at UBC. Like, he has a book that is, like, a career, like, historical look at, like, the history of how power gets distributed in terms of, like, votes and seats and things like this, uh, at the federal level. And his big argument is that Quebec's the pivot for government. So they vote as a cohesive bloc and they change who they vote for, which means that you have their, like a government will know you have their support, um, until you don't. And they're perfectly willing to withdraw it and give it to somebody else. And you can see that, like in 2015, federally, Quebec pivoted, Quebec pivoted away from the liberals. Well, in 20, 2011, Quebec pivoted away from the liberals, mm-hmm. um, to the NDP in a way that facilitated the conservatives winning. In 2015, Quebec pivoted away from the NDP, um, towards the liberals in a way that got the liberals a majority government. In 2019, Quebec pivoted back to the bloc in a way that got us a minority parliament. So the point is that they use their votes for power. Has Alberta ever done this? No. We do. We do. And it's like in places like elections like 1993 or these kind of like earthquake elections where new parties emerge, kind of like a phoenix out of the ashes of like previously existing parties. So it's not that we never pivot. It's just that we're not prepared to pivot every time. And so, like, this is, you want to know why just, like, if I were, I don't want to blame Justin Trudeau, because I know that, like, the name is a lightning rod, but if I were the federal government, where I knew I was never going to win seats in a part of the country, and they were screaming at me, part of me would be, like, tempted to let them scream into the ether, because they're not pivoting. Like, my position, my power is not threatened by their willingness to withdraw support. I never had it in the first place. But the same thing holds for like provincial government in Alberta too, right? If people want to have power, they've got to be able to pivot.
0: Until we do that, like I don't see much changing. That's a recurring thing that keeps coming up in, in my other podcast too. Just keeps coming back to it. Um, any other final thoughts, Her?
2: Well, I think that the interesting thing was these ideas have come up again and again. The question is this time... Will there be more momentum towards doing something? So if you go back, these have strategies have worked. So Peter Lougheed and the NEP did start to restrict oil exports to Ontario, forcing them to import more in the federal government then had to make up the price differential with the tax on the rest of Canada. And it did force a resolution at some point to the NEP. And then the long run story is that that uh, ag- that egregious policy that impacted on Alberta Uh, did lead to the NAFTA type arrangements so that it would be not possible for the federal government to do that to a Western Canadian province again. What's baffled, I think, Albertans is how did they see Ottawa did do it again, but it's viewed in the rest of Canada as carbon tax was a great way to get Alberta to heal. Restricting pipelines is, again, another way to restrain Alberta because in the rest of Canada, there isn't room for a big Alberta and a big Ontario. And when the Dutch disease argument, which is false, there's no evidence behind any of it, that Alberta caused the exchange rate to go up, which hampered uh, Ontario manufacturing, you then had a political coalition in this central Canada that said national interest is served by restraining Alberta's energy sector. And that sort of became the big fight. Alison Redford was engaged in it. And going forward, Rachel Notley was doing the same thing. But what you have is that Alberta is a region. Ontario is a national interest. And so this is why I think what Jason Kenney and this type of committee is trying to do is figure out in the new world order, we don't have the ability to restrict oil exports to Ontario and punish the rest of Canada the same way with the price differential. But how do you get their attention? Like Quebec manages to do it just by threatening not to vote for whatever party wants to go in. But if you are Alberta and you know historically you have been able to get attention by basically throwing a big tantrum and inflicting some costs in the short run, I think that separating from the Alberta pension plan has a simplistic logic that the rest of you will pay a higher premium if we go. Uh, it completely ignores <laughs> that most of the assets in that plan now are, are in the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board and it's not a given that the rest of Canada will let you take your contributions out. So you have to figure how much explicit debt you're about to create to meet the entitlements that people have paid in. So to me, it's really just about they've thrown down the gauntlet, whether or not they can come up with a strategy that threatens to impose a real cost on the rest of Canada to make them maybe back off on some of the uh, really nasty stuff like blocking pipeline development. I know they're not popular, but I think there is a case that could be made that Alberta today would have higher income if it had had more support through federal government institutions like the NEB and the rules of the game were changed on Alberta by Stephen Harper as well. It's not just Justin Trudeau and Albertans have been feeding into it as well. Like in Alberta, there's a lot of voices that are I would say sympathetic to what Ottawa has been doing. And so I don't think that there's broad support for a lot of the fair deal type policies in Alberta right now. You guys are urban. You're hip like Toronto. Like You've got a lot of Ontarians there. Like Your population is very different through all the internal migration, which was the fear when I moved there in 93 that people like me were going to wreck the place.
3: <laughs> I'd say we're hipper than Toronto. I've spent time in all these cities, I think. We understand
2: well, you're struggling with your green line, so... that's That's true true.
3: but how long did it take them to get decent train service to Pearson and Union Station right so anyway that's an entirely separate podcast
2: (laughs) yeah but you guys paid for that too so thank you
0: (laughs) and Doug what do you think
2: Uh,
1: I'm actually personally afraid for Alberta right now I mean if uh, if this trend continues and they're going to push this fair deal panel for Alberta I mean a a panel that's proposing you know to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to collect our own Alberta taxes. Right now, it's it's one-page form on the federal tax roll, and we, we pay, I think, a few million dollars for the feds to administer it for us. Hundreds of millions of dollars to set up an entire new bureaucracy to collect our taxes and make it more cumbersome and more complex for businesses and create more regulations. Spending I would guess, a billion dollars to create an Alberta police force and then to set ourselves up to maybe have an Alberta pension plan. And it, let's say we do get all of our, our investments out of the pension plan and we continue to push this. We face real challenges and then I don't think oil is coming back the way it, it used to be ever again. And even if we build a pipeline, I think we're still going to have low prices for oils, oil and gas for, for a long time in the foreseeable future. But our response to that has been to cut, to cut education, to cut healthcare, to cut uh, programs that help with diversification and small startups, and and draw us away from oil and gas to fire up our economy. I mean, I I know no one has ever um spent themselves to prosperity, but there's no jurisdiction on earth that has ever cut themselves into prosperity either. This is about balance, and I think Jim Prentice had it right when he talked about. I mean, I remember the smartest thing I heard him ever say was if we cut too much, we're gonna cause a recession in Alberta. We have to we have to approach this intelligently. The province isn't doing that right now. They're cutting and they're pushing this issue. And so so they're gonna to continue to scream, Well, we don't do anything about our actual situation now to diversify our economy. And the feds are gonna look at us and go, What are we supposed to do if you're not gonna do something to help yourselves? I mean, I I'm frustrated and you know what? I I give up. It's like screaming over the fence, and nobody's. You just you, you go to the other side of the fence, and you turn the music up. And Actually, you
2: moved off. to New Brunswick.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you do that, and then and then the solution, if we keep pushing this, is is to do something that Quebec did. Well, I'm Quebec's, you know, challenges to the federal government and and challenging Canadian unity all the time have not led to economic prosperity for them either. No. So I mean, if. It, <laughs> If it's all about just cutting what we're spending and not diversifying our economy and being mad at the federal government and everybody else across Canada for our situation and stomping like a kid to say we want more and this isn't fair while not doing anything to fix our situation, uh, here's my prediction. We won't be doing this fair deal panel again because in 20 years or 15 years when it comes back, Alberta will be a have-not province and we'll be desperate to have all those things that we're fighting right now.
3: And this is like the last, I know we're all like in full rant mode, but I don't think that Doug is alone in the feeling quite worried and reading the context, I think, correctly and saying, I give up. I, I feel like, and saying, like, I just want to like step away, turn the music up and like let the fury go. If this was a genuine exercise in public consultation, people would feel differently. If this is actually genuinely about what people thought and felt and addressing those root things to actually dissipate the anger and the anxiety, we would not be having this reaction to this particular report as a particular instance, but to this whole approach in general. Right. And so this is what like the calls for referenda and all these other sorts of things need to be tempered with. If I don't think it's sincere, because if it were, we would feel differently. We would feel more hope. We would feel more efficacy. Like we were actually doing something and like we could actually get some momentum to go somewhere. This is decidedly not where we are though. I'm really good at taking something and bringing it down to a very low and grim spot. I'm like terrible at dinner <laughs> parties because I do this all the time. I'm like, I'll leave my classes with this or be just kind of like, so like, have a good rest of your day. Right.
0: <laughs> Sorry. And, and I always, I always work really hard to, to, okay, let's not leave it there. But at the same time, I don't, I don't know that we can continue to have the conversation
2: Without- I have a positive finishing point.
0: <laughs> Go for it. Is
2: I would be happy to move back to Alberta if there was an opportunity there. And so I'm hoping yeah. that they figure this out so there are opportunities so that uh, there is a chance to come back because I love the place. Yeah. I thought I- it's a wonderful place to live. I love the people who are there. And I think that I really feel bad watching everyone going through this real rough patch because I did bail in 2016 to take a break. But the potential of that province is just incredible. And that's what everyone has to get back to thinking about is not how do we rip it down and sort of get our stuff, but the positivity that can be around, even when it wasn't the crazy boom, is people thought big. There was swagger about we can do this. And that's what I hope Albertans regain is just some of that can-do attitude. We're not going to wait for others to fix it. We're going to just take some positive steps. I think that's more rural uh, Alberta than urban and even it's Saskatchewan migration, I would attribute a lot of that to is the farmers are just fix stuff. Yep. Get those guys back in there.
3: <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. I work really hard to get back to Alberta. I'll be damned if I let the place go down the drain. Like this is the thing. Like <laughs> I moved back and I have not to go, but you know.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I think this province is important to Canada and that it has the ability to do stuff. If it just gets over its anger and starts to think about real solutions. But I'm not going back into politics. I've been through rehab. I am fully recovered. from here. All
0: right. Well, I think that is a much better level to leave it at. <laughs> Thanks you, all of you, for joining me today. And uh, I'm excited to get this out.
3: Thank you. Also, thank you for doing this your Jared. It's great.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Political R&D. Don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes and Google Play, and please consider subscribing on Patreon for early access to episodes and more at PoliticalRND.